1: hi everybody and welcome back to the new books network i'm your host steven siegel here on our channels new books in eastern european studies and new books history and today my guest is chris davis who is professor of history at lone star college kingwood and the author of hungarian religion romanian blood a minority's struggle for national belonging published by the University of Wisconsin Press, 2019, out in paperback, 2021. Thanks so much, Chris, for joining us today. Happy to be here. So a little bit about Chris uh, and his research and book. Chris Davis is professor of history at Lone Star College, Kingwood, and teaches U.S., European, and world history. He is the founder and coordinator of the college's Center for Local and Oral History. Prior to his grad studies, he served two years in the Peace Corps in Romania. He later earned an MA in Cultural Studies at Jagiellonian University in Kraków, Poland, and a PhD in Modern History at the University of Oxford St. Anthony's College. Chris researches and writes on minorities and religion in 20th century East Central Europe. Currently, he serves as a book review editor for H. Romania on Hnet, and as a board member for the Society for Romanian Studies, this first book, which I think is, is quite wonderful, uh, won two prizes already an AC's first book subvention award, as well as the 2020 Barbara Yelovich book prize. So let's get started with the big stories of this book today. Chris, I'm really interested um, listening to your, your story about a peace, being a Peace Corps volunteer, what motivated you to write the book?
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, you know, while I was in the Peace Corps, you know, my actually, actually my first degree is in English. My BA is in English. And I joined the Peace Corps uh, wanting an adventure. Uh, I was assigned to Romania. And then when I got to Romania, I was sent to a minority Hungarian-speaking town called Gorge in Romanian and Shepsi Senjoj in Hungarian. And there I taught English in a Hungarian language high school and just fell in love with Transylvania, with the idea of being in a kind of mixed community. Um, it reminded me a lot of growing up in Texas, right, with the uh, Mexican-Americans and um, uh, white Americans, and where you have this kind of confluence of languages, of cultures, of history and how they make it all work. So, you know, that kind of planted the seed in my mind of what I would like to study when I went on to graduate school. That was my plan after Peace Corps. So, it, you know, indeed, after two years of living in Transylvania, learning Hungarian, learning Romanian, um, I kind of had the idea of doing some kind of topic, whether it was in political science or history, on the minority situation in Romania. And so, once I was, uh, I spent a year uh, doing an MA in Poland, and after that, I went and studied at Oxford, and that kind of um, planted the seed, like I said, for what I would eventually study. Mm-hmm. And I get the impression that
1: you collected a lot of stories, both both formally and informally. So, could you give our listening audience maybe an idea of the people that you decided to feature in the book?
2: Sure. That's kind of an interesting story in itself. Um, you know, the the name of this community um, uh, called the, the Changos, right? The way I say it in English and Hungarian, Chango, singular Changok, um, Chungau or Chungai in Romanian. Um, you know, there had been a lot of work done on the secular community, which was kind of my first idea for a topic in Transylvania. But then I discovered this minority community that was... You know, what I've been told was half Hungarian, half Romanian, even a lot of Romanians living in Moldavia. So in the eastern part of Romania, where this community lives, considered them as as Roma or often referred to them as gypsies because they frankly didn't know much about them. Uh, They're Catholic, Roman Catholic. So that was a curious spin on this. And the more I read about them, you know, the more I realized there was never any... You know, kind of intrepid member of this community that went out and wrote their own history, that so much of their history had been ascribed or written from the outside. Even their ethnonym, Chango, right, is highly contested. You know, they don't refer to them. Some do, some don't, right? Um, and so, I, you know, I got in touch with some, I did a Fulbright in Budapest. I got in touch with some people who were active out there, mostly political activists, uh, some historians, and went out there and investigated this community, did archival work, uh, went on research trips, did field work, really as a kind of ethnographer or anthropologist. Um, But the curious thing is I realized that it was so easy to fall into a kind of romantic trap about this community and romanticize them. And, you know, I remember sitting there, (laughs) spending the night at this house in a village in Arani, Majarfalu, and the dad is playing on his chango pipes. There's this big moon in the sky. We're drinking palinka and realizing that I probably shouldn't be there if I'm going to write in some kind of, you know, none of us write in a purely objective way. But, you know, I realized that basically my story was not going to be about these people per se from the inside, but rather about all the people who've purported to claim some kind of identity, who had some stake in how they were represented. Um, so I really ended up writing more about the, you know, the anthropologists, the racial scientists, the historians, the politicians, Hungarian, Romanian, um, who purported to speak for this community and who used them as a kind of, you know, political or ethno-political football, if you will and so in that way i could better tell the story of not just these people not just these disciplines as they came into their own over the first half of the 20th century but you know a kind of history of romania and hungary using this community as a as a lens right through which to view early 20th century romanian and hungarian history mindful the whole time that you know i'm i'm basically using this community as a device so i had to be careful there and i i tried to be Um, And so that's really, you know, that's really kind of the framework of the book and how that all kind of filtered up from, you know, a few trips out there and realizing that, you know, I'm not doing uh, a wholesale ethnography or anthropology. And there's some good work done on this community by Hungarian and Romanian um, social scientists. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I'm particularly interested, not just in the framework, but Uh, in your methodology. And and so, I mean, you have these very interesting sections in your introduction where you talk about the work of people like Rogers Brubaker and Catherine Verdery and Marius Turda, the nation as subject and the nation as object. And you have this idea, I I find this really fascinating in in talking about intersectionality of a quadratic nexus. What is that? And, And how do you, how do you begin to, let's say, map out this world or these life worlds in multiple dimensions.
2: Yeah, that was a challenge at first, you know, and I drew heavily on the works of some of the people you've mentioned, you know, Rogers Brewbreakers has his, you know, famous triadic nexus between, you know, these, you know, two various nation states competing for community as well as, you know, the various ethno-political entrepreneurs, the communities themselves. Um, And in this case, you had not only Hungary and Romania vying for the identity of these, you know, these communities, these, and I'll be clear, these bilingual communities, and some of, you know, some of these villages, they are exclusively Hungarian speaking. Some were exclusively Romanian speaking. Some were bilingual. Um, some, it just depends who you ask and when. Uh, but this kind of fourth element was the role of the Roman Catholic Church, both from the Vatican and from. There in uh, in Bucharest and in Yash in the province, also from Budapest. So you have this whole network of institutions, of individuals, of groups, of governments that are changing, right over time. You know, we we move through World War One. We have this very um, active, contentious interwar period. And then, of course, World War Two. And so, I really look at this kind of nexus. These forces really pressing down on this community as they try to figure out not so much who they are for their own selves, but who does the Romania, the Antonescu government, right, who's deporting Jews right next door to them, right, out to Transnistria, who do they want us to be? Who do they need us to be? Or, you know, the Hungarian government who's sending their own kind of ethno political entrepreneurs. Out into these areas, trying to convince this community, "Hey, relocate to Hungary." But of course, their agenda is to fill spaces in Vojvodina from you know the Serbs and Germans and Jews that they recently kicked out. So it's a it's a tricky game, and you know the people who really speak up for this community—that's you know probably two hundred thousand strong. It really depends. Here again, what makes it so complicated? How you define you know who's in who's out um and especially for us as historians doing this in you know the early 21st century you know how they how they considered themselves by census data by their own church it's just tricky and messy and that's what attracted to me it attracted the topic uh, to me
1: yeah and and i i wonder if you could um Talk about the beginning and end of your book, and then how, let's say, I'm asking about your chapters. You know, really, how you decided to lay out your chapters. I mean, I'm intrigued by the fact that you begin in 1920, at least in the um, in the in the book's title with the Treaty of Trianon. And um, so, what what made you decide on the content for the five chapters? And and if you could give us a little idea of, of what the content of those chapters might be.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it really starts at the end of World War I um, with, obviously, Hungary ceding territory to Romania. You had the formation of, you know, what's referred to as Greater Romania. And so the idea of a minority, right? And this is actually a really new term. And this, you know, even the term minority, I mean, this really comes out of Versailles. And who gets to be called a minority? What rights do they have? This community lives in Eastern Romania, in Moldavia, right? Which had always been in the heart of Romania. But now you have this, um, now Transylvania is Romanian, right? And you have this Hungarian diaspora in Transylvania that is still connected across the Carpathians to this, you know, apparent ethno-linguistic kin, these changos. And the Romanian government realizes, okay, we've got these things called minorities, now that we're labeling them, all across our country, right? And it really defines the Romanian government and the Hungarian government, right? Trying to figure out what to do with who are now the Hungarian minorities in other states. And so Romania begins to just kind of look around their own country and realize, you know, there are these people called Changos, Roman Catholics in Moldavia, right? This stronghold of Romanian Eastern Orthodoxy. And, you know, they start sending ethnographers, you know, government agents, reporters out there to try to figure out who these people are and whether they belong. Are they Romanian? Are they Hungarian? And this is one of the points of the book is that, you know, it was no longer adequate to be both or something else, right? Um, You know, if we talk about... Uh, Tara Zara's work, right? This idea of you know national unbelonging. Well, that's no longer valid. I think she even mentions that once we get to yeah. the interwar period, or, or, or national amphibianism. Chad, right. Chad Bryant's right. work, right? Yeah, Chad Bryant. Winston Chu talks a lot about this. Whose work I, you know, I really like. Um, and so the Romanian government had to reckon with you know these two hundred thousand or so Catholics, and so it starts there. Really, uh, you know, there's a long backstory to this community. But um, one of the goals of my book is I, I wanted to have a relatively short book. Um, yes. And so I kept it pretty tight, um, starting with, you know, basically the start of the interwar period uh, through the end of World War II. So that's where it starts. Basically, Romania reckoning with, um, you know, this idea of demography. It's also coincides with the rise of these new disciplines, right? Anthropology, yeah, craniology. <laughs> yeah. And so right. there's this kind of perfect storm right and here this community that's completely subject to it
1: yeah and i, I really want to ask you about that chris because i uh, in my own work i write about ostforschung and, and ostforscher and uh, you cover this really well i mean drawing from um, anthony smith but actually going back much much further to the interwar period to the disciplines that that developed and, and were bandied about among leading hungarian romanian um, historians of the day. And and I guess my question for you, if we're talking about people like, like Jula Sikfu, right, is how the other disciplines emerged. You have things like, like ethno history or sociography or ethno geography. Can you, can you talk about that landscape maybe in both in Hungary and in Romania and in some of the figures that you're covering?
2: Sure. I think it comes out of, you know, this kind of pressure to, identify, you know, their own nation. And you had, you know, especially in Romania, you know, a lot of these students um, who now feel this sense of empowerment, right, are being sent off to France sent off to Germany, even studying in Hungary and coming back with these new ideas, uh, you know, that wanting to go beyond just history, but of course, applying it to the nation. Um, and they pick up on things like, you know, geopolitics, or they create their own things, ethnohistory, right, where this concept of, you know, ethnicity, or race becomes central to the study of history or sociology. And so you have this branching off of these newly created um, ancillary disciplines, right, that are moving out of the academic mainstream and really challenging the old guard, whether it's in Hungary or Romania, Most of these guys are young. They've gone abroad to study. They've come back. There are new opportunities in Romania, for instance, now that they have, you know, Transylvania in their own territory, um, Bukovina. And they're creating their own universities, establishing them, funding them uh, with the idea of integrating the nation. But first, they need to define, you know, who belongs and mm-hmm. as they go out, they realize, you know, oh, my God, even these people we had always counted as Romanians, they don't speak like us. They have no sense of their own history, or at least what, you know, these um, these social scientists uh, think of their own history. And so they come up with all of these ideas and they write some really interesting work. You know, some of it is scientific. But this is where you get uh, Dimitri Gusti, right? The famed Romanian sociologist. Uh, We mentioned Julia Sekfu, who kind of create their own camps. And then they start training their own students, right? Young, mostly men, but also women, going out and giving them new topics, right? Because instead of, you know, sitting in the academy, getting jobs, many of which weren't available, you know, go out, be intrepid, go out, discover you know, your own ethnic kin, write about it, define this nation, define it anew. And that's what they did on all kinds of levels and through all kinds of disciplines. Could you could you talk about some of those relationships between the the
1: let's say ultra nationalist scientists and the ultra nationalist theologians and people who were active on the religious front? I mean it I get the impression that, that there are very fragile kind of concordats, plural, that are that are going on um, between the state authorities and and between some of the hierarchies from the capitals, and especially in Romania. Um, and, and once you have the 1923 Constitution, so it. How how do you then begin to investigate not just as a, an intrepid explorer, but but this. Um, more complicated analytical relationship between the interwar states and churches.
2: Right. You have some strange bedfellows here. Um, You know, once, you know, for instance, this Roman Catholic clergy in Moldavia that, you know, really kind of speaks for this Chango community, you know, at first they're really put off by these racial anthropologists and scientists who are coming out questioning, studying this community, but, you know, by the... Uh, by, by World War II, they realized, well, they might actually be of use if somehow, if they come and do these, you know, serology tests, that they can prove through blood, at least the way they were thinking at the time, that, you know, this community is Romanian, right? Or, you know, the the Hungarians who were going out to study the changos, right, would use the, the Hungarian Catholic Church, right? We have examples of priests who were kind of undercover agents, right, trying to encourage these changos to relocate uh, by World War II. And, you know, even in Romania, you have this really this radicalization of the Romanian Orthodox Church. And you've got guys like Nayonescu, uh, Nikifor Crinic uh, who count themselves as theologians in their own right, uh, lay theologians, if you will. And you have this kind of mishmash of, you know, clerics dabbling in history, in sociology, in racial studies, as well as these, you know, social scientists dabbling in theology. And they're all kind of using one another to, you know, to gain access for certain areas of study to gain legitimacy, um, for you know, for instance, the Romanian Orthodox Church in trying to reclaim churches that were, you know, Greek Orthodox or even Catholic, and using some of this racial anthropology or geography or demography studies to somehow prove that the community in which this you know, church that they want to reappropriate was in point of fact Romanian and they had been denationalized over the previous decades and centuries and therefore entitles the church to reclaim properties of other churches, you know? And so you've got all of this going on in this really kind of wild, wild west landscape that was the interwar period in places like Transylvania and Moldavia. This episode is brought
0: to you by Shopify. hmm
1: And what were some of the differences to your understanding between the, the interwar Hungarian state and the interwar Romanian state? I guess I'm, I'm asking here more about your chronology as, as you begin um, to narrate through your chapters. And, and uh, you talk wonderfully, I think, about the denationalizers as well as the nationalizers who, who are in search of brethren. Um across the borders. But I, I wonder if if you could give a kind of order, if there's almost like a chronological order to both of the states or in a comparative sense, if that's too simple. I, I don't know. How would you do that? Or how, how did you do that in your chapters?
2: Yeah. You know, that was also tricky um, because, you know, I, I didn't want to ping pong back and forth. This is Hungary, this is Romania, this is Hungary, this is Romania. But, um, you know, You know, Hungary is trying to figure out what to do with the ethnic kin across the borders with an eye toward a future restitution of those borders. So it's playing this tricky game of wanting some communities uh, back home, but also wanting most of them to stay put, right, with the idea that, you know, these borders are going to change and they want these ethnic kin there in Transylvania in Vojvodina, so that they, when they reclaim these borders, and this is where, you know, the whole idea of the discipline of demography and the connected studies comes into play is defining down, right? Who is Hungarian? Who is other? And keeping them there uh, as a way to legitimize claims on territories. Romania is doing the same thing. Of course, in the early 1920s, when they go out and realize, you know, my God, there's all these... (laughs) My minorities and mixed communities, well, they need to go out and redefine who's Romanian. And that's where you get this curious kind of concept of denationalization on both sides. Because when Romania goes out and finds out, oh, well, there's a lot more Hungarians here than we thought, and oh, there's all these Jews and Roma, you know, how are we going to lay claim to hold on to so many of these territories? and they come up with this idea of denationalization. Well, in point of fact, these Romanians, these communities, whether they're Romanian speaking or not, you know, have been denationalized, whether it's through the Catholic Church, the Hungarian government policies, and therefore, even though they might not speak Romanian, they might not be Romanian Orthodox, in point of fact, if we can kind of deconstruct this history through various disciplines, scientific disciplines, we can peg them as still Romanian, as belonging. And this goes all through, it kind of starts in the 1920s. The 1920s is where they really kind of go out and discover this problem, right? And they're searching for an answer. And then we get to the 1930s where, you know, ethnography and, you know, we talked about, um, you know, the scientists from Germany coming in, influencing geography, um, geopolitics, especially where, you know, they've kind of identified the problem in both states, in the 1920s. And it's the 1930s where they kind of actively work to demonstrate that, no, these people, and this is where you get a lot of the different maps. You have a new census taken in Romania in 1930, and they create so many, I mean, really interesting maps. Um, uh, Hungary's doing the same thing, right? Redefining category, categories of uh, belonging, in introducing ethnicity in their censuses, Um, and Hungary and Romania is both doing this, right? Redefining what religion means in terms of ethnicity, of mother tongue, all with the idea of proving that more Romanians live in Romanian territory and for Hungary, more Hungarians live in uh, Romanian territory. Um, And and that's another thing I'm trying to do is compare these censuses, compare this demographic work. And of course they come up with different answers. And that's one of the points of the book is that you know, this whole business of ethnicity and national identity is messy and, of course, highly subjective. I mean, we know this, but here we get to see it, you know, how different states kind of wrangled with it, right, and could come up with, you know, vastly different conclusions using, of course, state-of-the-art science, which in the 1930s, you know, you see something done on blood work or craniometry or, you know, statistics and tables and detailed maps you know that looks provable, but of course, you're doing it on both sides with different agendas and different results. Yeah,
1: and and I, I mean, I love your coverage because of my own, you know, sort of interest in Count Paul Teleki, of, of the Romanian geographers, like like Valsan. Um, I think is a great example of um, someone who who's actually intermingling a whole lot of disciplines in in order to um, prove national belonging in a kind of very foundationalist sort of way. Um, but I guess my question is, is how you as, as a local, you know, regionalist or maybe even autonomous begin to give the, the Changos voice. So like, how do you begin then to sort around these um, manly male scientists who are doing all of this? Because they're men mostly. I mean, you mentioned there were a few women. I'd be interested in that too. But these these are all kind of expeditionists, right? Who who are going out and finding origins and neurotically almost obsessed with origins. So, how do you then begin to, you know, get the local voice or to get the regional voice and a deeper and, and more layered sense of place for the Changos communities?
2: Yeah, well, to be totally honest, it was hard, um, and it still is. You know, I um, you know I had to rely on mostly archival sources. And you really get to it in in the early 1940s and throughout the 1930s too, mostly it's letters being written to the Antonescu government, um, letters being written to the Vatican. A lot of these letters, of course, are written by the the Roman Catholic clergy in the Chango areas. You know, most of these People, you know, these are rural people living in the villages um, along the Sidat River from, you know, around Bako and Yash, going north and south, um, running parallel with Carpathian Mountains right there. Um, And so they're being filtered through the priests who have their own agenda, of course. And so, you know, I'm really just trying to read through a lot of their letters that they're writing, the complaints that they have writing to the parish priest, writing to, you know, the bishopric, writing to the Antonescu government, and trying to get a sense of what their problems are as individuals. You know, for example, one letter that I actually didn't include in the book is a guy who's a, he's a railway worker, right? Uh, He works for the Romanian National Railways, which is a good job for him. Um, I forget which village he's working in, but he gets a letter in the mail one day, and this is late 1930s saying that um, he can no longer work at his outpost for the Romanian national railways because he's a minoritar a minority and is considered hungarian and therefore he needs to move back to his home village and he's being you know relieved of his job the guy has no idea what they're talking about right in in his mind he doesn't know what a, you know what's a minority right? He's been a Roman Catholic who speaks Romanian and Hungarian from Moldavia, right? His, uh, you know, for generations, his families had fought in the Romanian army. And again, the idea of calling themselves as anything but Romanian, even if they probably wouldn't have self-identified first as Romanian, but as a, you know, a Roman Catholic from Moldavia, you know, this was a a shocking letter to get, right? Who, Who is telling me this? I'm, I'm a Hungarian apparently. Right. Um, and I'm this thing called a minority and now I've lost my job because of it. Right. And this was after legislation that had been passed in the late 1930s, you know, saying that if you weren't ethnically Romanian and provable, you know, demonstrably ethnically Romanian, you couldn't, yeah, certifiably. Right. And I'm sure we'll get into that. You know, then you couldn't own certain types of property. You couldn't, you know, have a gun for hunting. You couldn't be an officer in the military. You couldn't buy expropriated Jewish property. And, you know, apparently you couldn't work at this outpost on the Romanian railways. And this was all kind of jarring to them. Yeah. And, you know, they write, you know, so many of them write, especially by the 1940s, you know, their son is on the Eastern Front fighting in Stalingrad as part of the Romanian army. And yet they're having certain properties being dispossessed. They're told they have to relocate uh, or they can't do this, that, or the other, which is completely news to them, right? That they're apparently Hungarian. Then they hear whiffs of, they're going to be deported. They've got Hungarian priests and ethnographers coming into their villages, telling them that, oh, by the way, you're Hungarian. You didn't know this this whole time, right? You spoke Hungarian and you're Catholic. That means you're Hungarian and you need to pack your bags and, you know, relocate to to Hungary, which is actually Vojvodina. And so I, I try to dig into the letters like this, you know, students being discriminated against in school, um, the, you know, the government forcing the um, church services to be exclusively in Romanian, you know, things of that nature where you really get a sense of the problem that on a community level, a family level, an individual level that they're dealing with, you know, and I really try to relate this, that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, these are, these are human beings, they're farmers, you know, they're soldiers, they're, you know, clergy. And, you know, the sense that I really get that I think is lost on so many scholars, even today this idea of homeland and home, and, and not in a national sense, but that, you know, this farm has been in their family for generations. Um, the cemetery where all their ancestors are buried, the tree where, you know, somebody kissed his girlfriend for the first time and they got married and they they don't want to leave this place, you know, and, you know, my kind of conclusion is toward the end of <laughs> they're trying <laughs> Excuse me. Um, they're trying to figure out what do I need to be? who do you want me to be? And if that is what we need to be at a community level to get through this war, to get through this contest of nations, then you know what? we will represent ourselves as that. but please don't deport us east like you're doing Romanian government. and please don't relocate us as part of this population transfer scheme hungarian government right we want to live where we've lived for centuries so uh chris let me ask you a question about the national nationality
1: certificates and how they were used among the the changos and especially the the catholic chango families Uh, i'm interested not just in this the state level um interference and and top-down government at ascribing nationality But how do you think, let's say, from the local level or regional level that these communities or minority communities manipulated the nationality certificate um, program of the interwar states?
2: Right. So this is one of the most fascinating for me parts of my own research and discoveries were these nationality certificates, which, you know, later became referred to as, you know, ethnic ethnicity certificates. Um, you know, the idea of nationality takes on new meanings, but some of them go back to, uh, the early 20th century. And certainly after, um, after Vienna and Versailles with all of these kind of, um, relocations of persons who are entitled to go back to their home country, you know, the Romanian government generates these, um, certificates so that individuals can identify, they're kind of like, Nationality passports, or uh, if you will, um, state-issued certificates, although they're really issued at the local level, you know, in Dobruja, in the very south of Romania, you had these um, Ottomanians, right, coming from the Balkans, being resettled there, Um mixing with Bulgarians and Turks and and Jews and
1: others from Macedonia too. Right.
2: Right. And so you have, you know, you also have this idea of bringing Romanians back home to resettle Romania. And it just is a really kind of identity marker. You know, the state passes these laws for, you know, that, um, we need to create these index, these ledgers of who lives, where this goes back to, you know, kind of rediscovering who's in this country, To begin with so that we can kind of reconcile who belongs. And, you know, the state requires many of these minorities to get nationality certificates, right? Some of which say they're Romanian, some of which say they're, you know, Bulgarian or Jew or whatnot. And then as they can gain citizenship, they can get these certificates that say, no, in point of fact, you know, you are a Romanian national and it's a nationality certificate For somebody who was not previously a Romanian citizen, but has now gained citizenship through the process of naturalization. So as we move through the 1920s and 1930s, these certificates take on these kind of different dimensions, right, as a way to identify who belongs and who doesn't. And it becomes increasingly clear to many minorities that possessing one of these certificates that state you are Romanian will enable you like this example I mentioned uh, earlier of the, the railway worker who gets fired from his job because he's not ethnically Romanian as a way as it's kind of like a get out of jail free card, right? That you can hold up to the state and say, no, actually in point of fact, I am ethnically Romanian. I get to keep my job or not be deported. Right. And you know, you know for instance in the in dobruja right uh, the Ottomanians were empowered with bringing Ottomanians and other so called vlachs from the balkans to be relocated well the way they got to prove that is if you had a certificate and they were selling these certificates right it was kind of a racket selling them to greeks selling them to bulgarians who wanted to get out of greece or bulgaria for various reasons and, you know, it was actually a very decentralized process that the state mandated these things, but nobody really knew how to define what, it, what is ethnically Romanian. And so it was rife for corruption. You had them issued at, you know, the county level, the prefect of police or the mayor's office. And you can see where that might go in 1920s, 1930s Romania, um, it, you know, as a way to prove that you're one thing or another. And you know, this goes back to the work of James Scott, uh, Jane Kaplan, who was one of my advisors at St. Anthony's College, this idea of inscribing this identity of creating a legible people, right? And it's this great study that you see in, in Romania of, you know, how do you prove you're Romanian? Well, you do whatever you can to get this piece of paper that says you're Romanian. And I include examples of these certificates in my book. You know, some of them, you know, from the Cebu area, right? This historically German area are ornate, typed up, have all these beautiful stamps. You know, it's a really interesting document, right? Others from kind of the far-flung Eastern Romania is just a handwritten note, right? Verified by a priest and signed and stamped by, you know, somebody in the mayor's office, right? But it was a document, right? It was something that could prove you were one thing or another. And then it becomes even more more complicated when we get to, you know, the wartime period, because the government realizes, okay, people they want to kick out have these documents saying they're Romanian, but, you know, according to this kind of racial paradigm of who's purely Romanian, that can't be. And then you have other people who, you know, do count themselves as as Romanian. Um, They always have been, they speak Romanian, but they're caught up in one scheme or another and they can't prove that they're Romanian, you know, and they're searching for these certificates. And in one County they're saying, well, if you can't prove it, we can't give you one. Well, how do you prove it? Well, there's no real guidelines for this. So it's a real mess. And I, you know, I try to chart this in my book, but again, it just points back to the, you know, this kind of nebulous thing that we think we know is ethnic this or that, or national this or that. Um, but it's really, it's kind and, and, of this messy unmixing and untangling that, um, you know, especially during a time of war. Yeah. Um,
1: it, and and, it, and it, sound, it sounds to me that, I mean, in all, almost all of the categories that ultra nationalists would argue are, are fixed, or that the state rationalists and positivists from the census on down, would argue are are clear with boundaries. There there are major problems. So right, I mean from you know the issue of soil blood soul to phi race or mother tongue Anyanllev. Right. Um, I guess my my question then is what changes? Let's say in nineteen forty. And then where do you see comparisons between say secular villages in, in Bukovina and the Chungo villages in, in Moldavia? What, what is the story there?
2: Yeah, well, it's a case of having all of these ideas that sound good in theory, look good on paper, look nice on maps in census data in journals and articles and books. Um, but when you actually go out there and try to apply these, you know, these frameworks or these ideas of a purely Hungarian people or Romanian or have some definition of what constitutes a particular nationality, you know, they realize that doesn't actually work in practice, right? Is they, they go out and try to apply these paradigms and especially, you know, it's one thing to come up with this when you're publishing an article or writing a book. But it's quite another thing when you are in charge of relocating tens of thousands of people, not just to deport them, right? But to move them from one village or another, right? Or who gets to be in the army, right? All sounds fine and well, except when you realize, you know, you're losing thousands and thousands of men on the Eastern front and you need warm bodies to pick up a gun and go fight on behalf of Romania. You need their crops, Right. to to be reaped, right? To feed the population and to feed the army. And what happens when you start alienating people, start calling them and pegging them as, you know, this other, this minority. And, you know, it becomes a real crisis for the Antonescu regime. And, you know, one thing I discovered about the Antonescu regime and others have kind of written on this, you know, Vladimir Solonari has some great work on this, is that at the end of the day, both in Hungary and Romania, You know, at the state level, they become real pragmatics, even though they have all these racial scientists in their in their government and they're funding all of this. You know, they realize, you know, what happens if we send these settlers of Bukovina or let these changos in Moldavia and other Hungarians or Bulgarians, for that matter, relocate back to various provinces um, and be counted as something other than Romanian, well, then that's going to, um, you know, put questions into our claims of either holding on to territories or regaining territories that they want. And especially, you know, by the mid, I mean, by the even by the early 1940s, they kind of see the writing on the wall that this war is probably going to end pretty soon and Germany's going to lose. And they're starting to plan for the post-war settlement. And they really begin to question, you know, what is the utility of alienating and pestering all these people because they're insufficiently Romanian, or they have this certificate or not that certificate, when it's much easier just to claim them in a more traditional civic sense as Romanian citizens to thereby legitimize the territories we want and not to move them. Um, And you get that in both Hungary and Romania, this kind of reckoning of this whole racial Discourse, this idea of purity of nation, that was at a fever pitch, you know, in the 1930s and at the start of the war. And while many of these guys were useful, they do get sidelined, right, after a while, because it really becomes um, a counting problem, right, a demographic problem um, of who's going to, you know, prevail in the post-war settlement, and what matters most of all. Is extending or keeping the borders, and however they need to count the populations on paper, they'll do that, right? And purity be damned.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm wondering if you if you might talk about the the kind of palimpsest that analogy that that you draw in the conclusion, this overlay of of all the categories, religion and, and languages and, and kinship, because it strikes me that you know, beyond certification and beyond let's say dna and ancestry.com right i mean that story you know because that that's obviously something that that not just changos but also hungarians and romanians are doing too in order to trace their family histories how i mean how do you see this you know complexity of, of of identity through a new lens and what what would you like to see in in current research and historiography not just about the changos but about Romania and
2: Hungary in general, right? Well, you know, ideas of you know ethnic racial purity aside, you know, there's always this obsession with origins, right? And and Romanians do it, the Hungarians do it. They were doing it um, as a way to kind of, you know, also to lay claims on territory, who belong. This has to do with the churches too. But the more I research this and investigate it, you know, you realize that, uh, you know not just people move, but languages move. Um, And that a community that, you know, can count themselves as present in a particular area for centuries, you know, you realize that, you know, there's languages that shifted, religions came in, one church was established as Greek Catholic, right? Then it switched to Roman Catholic. Um, There was intermarriage, a name changed, somebody was adopted. They Hungarianized their names during one period. They Romanianized it during another. And so these markers at you know a very kind of superficial and present level, oh, this person, this individual, or this community, or this family has a Romanian name and is Roman Catholic. Therefore, they are this, that, or the other. Well, when you scratch the surface, right? And I talk about this as kind of a palimpsest, right? These different layers of... Languages, of cultures, of movement of peoples, of you know, politics, economics, right, that have just kind of washed over Central and Eastern Europe. And I, you know, I think, you know, somebody like Kate Brown, who was a big inspiration for me, her book, A Biography of No Place, you know, captures this, I think, better than anyone. You know, that there are just these waves of forces, cultural, linguistic ethnic or what we might think of as ethnic you know, even the idea of ethnic, you know, changes over time or concept of race. And so, you know, and you're seeing that now, with some of these DNA tests that are, you know, so superficial, so Completely unreliable. incomplete, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> yeah. but it's, again, this is another, you know, it's like the racial serology, the serology that was done back in the 30s, wow, here's a blood group index on a nice chart with numbers that you can't understand, you know, the Hirschfeld index, and it's published by a scientist with a string of letters after their name in this scholarly journal. And it's like, okay, wow, well, we must be Romanian. Well, you can see this with a lot of the DNA work. And it's not that, you know, this um, genetic work isn't of value or interest, but you have to be really careful of your starting point and i see some of this you know it's a presumption that this village is already this by definition so we're going to interpret this dna data as you know that you know never mind all of the you know the changes uh, that happened you know not just in a you know a century but even in a generation uh, you know especially with names naming something the way letters get dropped off the way they get nationalized renationalized And so it's just a, you know, a soupy mix of peoples. I think that's one of the beauty of, you know, Central and Eastern Europe, if we can see it in that way. And that's really kind of one of the points of the books is that these paradigms that we call national or ethnic or even linguistic and religious, you know, that this is really kind of superficially, you know, superimposed on Millions and millions of human beings over time, not, not to say that those things aren't real in their own way, but they become reified, you know, this concept of who's Romanian or Hungarian. Um, but it's really just at a, a surface level. If you if you kind of dig below um, and that's what I you know, that's what I try to do in this book.
1: And, and my, my last question for you, Chris, beyond all of these schools of, of social constructivism and ethno- symbolism and primordialism and essentialism uh, you know i am thinking of of the original meaning as some changos have have said or maybe Hungarians have said about changos of the word meaning to wander and to stray or, or maybe you know to roam or in another meaning to drive lov- to drive livestock right and use as it's used in folk speech to 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 signify wandering, I'm wondering if you might wander into the world of scholarship and suggest for our listeners some books that they might be able to read either about local life or village life or um, comparative and transnational history of the region. And then finally, to talk a little bit about the projects that you might be interested in and that you're working on now.
2: Sure. Um, you know, I, I've been influenced by the work of Marius Turda. He's got a book on Hungarian eugenics, but, you know, his work on racial anthropology across Romania and Hungary was, you know, really pioneering, and built, but also building on the work of Maria Bukur. Um, you know, that, that really is the research from which I, my kind of departure, that I took it upon my own case study of the Changos. You know, I've mentioned, you know, a lot of the authors and scholars writing on Poland and Ukraine. Um, are just doing fantastic work. And I've mentioned Kate Brown, A Biography of No Place. Paul Hunnebrook, um who, you know, his in defense of Christian Hungary, really dealt with this this other part of the nexus, the, you know, the church issue that brought in that I also thought was really influential. And of course, you know, the, the work of Catherine Verdery, over the years, uh, any of her works on whether it's Transylvanian villagers or the work she does on Romania, even remaining communism, I found, you know, uh, really helpful for my work on the interwar and world war II periods. Um, yeah, those are people I would recommend if you're kind of looking at the topics here. Uh, Roland Clark has a really good book out on Romanian fascism. Vladimir Solonari has done good work in this area. And, and what, what you're
1: working on now. So do
2: you have a new project
1: and um, could you talk about that? I see you're doing a lot with local and oral history now.
2: Yeah. You know, I teach a lot of American history now and that has, you know, really given me a, even more of a transnational perspective on the work that I do when I write about Central and Eastern Europe. Um, I would like to do some oral history in Romania. I don't think there's a lot of that being done. I'm interested, you know, I, you know, I teach in my American history courses about American slavery. So a future project I'd like to do is kind of a uh, comparative history of American and Romanian slavery, especially to what extent, um, um, you know, abolitionist movements and emancipation were being read and discussed in Romania at around the time of, you know, the American Civil War and the lead up to that. Um, I have an article i published on through Hnet through, um, uh, a grant I was working on as part of a, a Swiss foundation grant, um, uh, entitled the majority problem, right? So I'm toying with this idea of the majority problem or the majority question, kind of turning this idea on its head, you know, people who work on minorities, you know, this kind of it, counter idea or narrative that, you know, in the same way that minorities are constructed, so are majorities, right? And so maybe looking at that in a bit more detail of focusing on how majorities are constructed in opposition to the minorities that they create in turn. And so I've got a number of things I'm working on in that respect. And I have kind of the second half of my story, which is you know, the Changos and some of these same issues and topics uh, during the communist period. Uh, so I've got a number of chapters that I left out of this book because I wanted it to be a bit more concise and really just focus on the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But I've got another, whether it's going to be a few articles or a separate book on Roman Catholicism and these changos and minority question uh, during communism. And, and just keep going, Chris. That's, that's all. <laughs>
1: really, through, through all of this, just keep going. And, and congratulations again on this wonderful book. Uh, I want to tell our listeners about it. Again, here at New Books Network, we've been talking with historian Chris Davis from Lone Star College, Kingwood. He is the author of Hungarian Religion, Romanian Blood: A Minority's Struggle for National Belonging, published by the University of Wisconsin Press, twenty nineteen, coming out in paperback now in twenty twenty one. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us on our podcast today here at New Books Network. It was, it was my pleasure, and I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Until next time.